0: Good afternoon. You are listening to Radio Maria. It's time for our Credo program, the program that nourishes your faith. And as always, or nearly always on a Tuesday afternoon, Derek, it is a delight to welcome you again to our Credo program. I understand this is part two of Fear of the Lord series. And today you'll be speaking about our personal encounter with God. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Aileen. It's it's great fun to be to be here with you. Um, I'm so glad that Eddie's taking a break this week, so I mean you can have a nice little chatter. <laughs> I'll pass
0: that on. I'll pass that on, Derek. Thank you. That no, makes no, me don't, feel don't, good. Don't,
1: don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear about it on the recording.
0: <laughs> yes, you will.
1: <laughs> so, shall I crack on with this set with this teaching on the on on so so listeners last year last week we listened to part one of the fear of the Lord. Where, we, where I defined it using um, the teachings of um, John Paul II, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Sacred Scripture. Um, and this week, we're going to look at the, the personal encounter with God, because the fear of the Lord really comes to the soul through that personal encounter. Um, so I'm going to begin by looking at the prophet Isaiah and his calling. And I'm going to, I'm basically the whole, the whole session today is going to be about the different prophets and apostles and their calling and how God infuses into each of their souls this particular grace in order that they can complete the mission that God has called them to. And that really is one of the important things about this grace, the fear of the Lord, is it enables us to do the task that God has entrusted to us and to do that fruitfully because it gives us a fear of offending God. That fear of offending God enables us to make a decisive break with a sinful lifestyle and to say to God, you know, I don't... and to basically recognize that we no longer wish to offend God. We want to turn away from sin and we want to try and live in holiness. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we're never going to sin again because we will fall into sin. It just means we now abhor it. We do not want it anymore. So Let me take a look at Isaiah 6. Okay. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, I want to pause there. Um, Isaiah is a priest. He's serving in the temple of the Lord. And I want you to think of that the temple. Think of the Jerusalem temple, uh, probably around about five, six hundred years BC. The temple um, was basically open roof There wasn't a a roof on it, and the walls of the inner side of the temple were covered with seraphim. So imagine the scene that Isaiah is actually in that temple. He's making sacrifices, and he's surrounded by um, painted seraphim. And then the Lord intervenes in that, and he actually replaces the painted seraphim with real seraphim. So, Isaiah sees the Lord, probably where the Holy of Holies is. He probably sees the Lord on his throne. So, everything that is symbolic becomes real. It's like the veil is lifted and Isaiah sees, instead of seeing a, a holy place and a most holy place in front of him where he's making his sacrifices, he now sees the real thing. He now sees God sitting upon a throne. And once again, we might say, um, well, who is the Lord that is sitting upon the throne? Um, who is the one that he's seeing? Generally, the, the fathers of the church would generally say that he's seeing um, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's what the church fathers would generally say. Um, and um, and the, the encounter is with the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, Why can't it be the Father? Why can't Isaiah be seeing the Father? Um, If we think about some of the things from the Old Testament, scripture readings which tell us, no one can see God and live. So that is often applied to the Father. Whereas Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the mediators. They're the ones who are sent. They're the ones who come from the Father and they're the ones who are encountered throughout the Old Testament. The only one, I think, who actually sees the Father is Daniel. If you look in the prophet Daniel, it says he, he describes him as, I saw one who is ancient of days. And he describes one who is described as an old, ancient, but young man. Um, and that, that is the only one, probably, who actually encounters the Father, possibly. Okay, now that would actually take a little bit more looking into, but in this one, generally the fathers like St. Augustine in the Trinitate, his book on the Trinity, um, and one or two of the other um, church fathers, generally they're saying this is Jesus. So Isaiah has got before him the symbol, then he sees the reality. Okay, and this is what the reality is. The seraphim call to one another and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And now here's, here's the reality that Isaiah is confronted with. So think about this. Imagine we, when we go into church, um, we're, we're worshipping God, we have incense, we have the organ playing a beautiful music, the readings which are proclaimed, the Eucharist. At the time of the Eucharist, when the priest... Places his hands over the chalice and the host. Everything is done in such silence and stillness. There's a calmness, a restfulness, a peacefulness about it. Listen to this, okay? And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts so the threshold the temple was shaking this has happened okay if we went to Acts chapter 4 the people of God have been suffering their first persecution and they all pray and as they're praying The Holy Spirit comes down upon them in great power and it says, the building shook. So there are times in the Bible where the building shakes because of the power of God coming into the midst of the people of God. Now in verse 6, so Isaiah is praying, he's saying, woe to me, he recognizes his sinfulness. Now this this is the first movement, if you like, of the fear of the Lord. This is the first movement of the encounter with God. The person who encounters God, generally, how can we best apply this? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He also talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3, where he talks about when we see God, it's like looking into a mirror. But instead of seeing God, we see our sinfulness. Um, And St. John of the Cross references this. He talks about how when a person encounters God in a particular way, it is like a bright light shining into the soul. And whereas before, the person would have thought that their soul was quite clean, perhaps they were a good person, they're doing okay. When they now see their soul, they're seeing all the dirt lit up by this very bright sun, a bit like the sun shining through a window and we suddenly see all the dust. And each grain of dust is a different sin. And you think to yourself, how am I going to clean that up? You know, you look at your soul and, you th- and you, the, the first reaction is, oh my gosh, woe to me. That's why as I say, is, woe to me, but I am lost. Okay, so Re- Isaiah recognizes there's nothing he can do. He's done for. This is, what, this is the thing, he's done for. Now, it's not despair because he stood in the presence of God, but he's, he's recognizing he's a man of unclean lips. And then God, of course, God in his, in his mercy, look what God does in his mercy. He reveals the sin and then he provides the solution. And that's what the grace of God does. The grace of God first reveals the sin of the soul, but then it provides the solution. In verse verse 6, Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. Now notice once again, if you go back to where I began this, when Isaiah is in the temple of God, now the function of the priest in the temple, one of the main functions, was to take animals that have been brought in for sacrifice, so uh, cow, sheep, um, doves, pigeons, etc. And his job is to offer the sacrifice up to God and then place them on this rather huge altar. We're talking about an altar, which is, let me just think of the measurements of it. Let's say one and a half to two meters by one and a half to two meters in, in um, area, in surface area, and raised off the ground by, let's say, another meter. So you've got a priest who is standing over this huge altar. The altar is full of coals. It's full of charcoal. It's burning. It's constantly burning. It's constantly very, very hot because all the sacrifices are placed on this altar and they're burned. And you're talking about hundreds of sacrifices a day. So Isaiah was his job would have been to stand there and to offer sacrifice after sacrifice. Now once again that is symbolic, and here the the seraphim has in his hand a burning coal, which is taken with tongues from the actual altar, the altar in heaven. And you might say, hold on a minute, that can't be right. There can't be an altar like that in heaven. Well, actually, when God gave Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, God said to Moses, see that you build it according to what you saw in heaven. So it's a model of what Moses saw in heaven and therefore Isaiah is seen it. Now once again, heaven's a spiritual place, it's a different place. We wouldn't necessarily see real hot coals. So there's a a spiritual dimension going on. But what does the Seraphim do? He takes a burning coal and he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. Um, Please don't do this at home. (laughs) I know you've got those nice little coal fires burning away in your lounge and you're probably thinking, oh, is that what you can do with the coal? <laughs> no, you, no, it's it's not recommended. Um, and the the seraphim touches his mouth and then says, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin forgiven. Now, that sentence in itself is packed. Okay, it's packed we're looking at something that is happening to Isaiah on a spiritual level. He's experiencing something spiritual, but it's doing something. And, it, and it's sort of being, Isaiah is talking about it in terms of his body. And this is, the, this is the language of the mystics. The language of the mystics, for example, talk about the kiss of Jesus and, and how Jesus gives a mystical kiss Uh, And it changes the soul. So although it looks like Jesus has physically kissed the person, what's really happening is there's a a spiritual dimension where the soul is being transformed through the kiss of Jesus. Now, once again, the seraphim has touched Isaiah's lips with the coal and that has purified him of his sin. And yet there's a twist in the narrative, isn't there? Because we all know that sin is rooted in the heart, not on the lips. But Isaiah himself says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What does that say to us? But well, it basically tells us that yes, the sin is in the heart, but often that sin comes out in the words we say, the things we speak, uh, the way we live our lives. So Isaiah's Isaiah's repentance has to come from his mouth, it has to come from his lips. So the angel has touched his lips, the guilt is taken away, the sin is forgiven. So it's a unique grace that the prophet Isaiah receives at the beginning of his ministry. Then Isaiah can hear the voice of the Lord. Now I like this, I think this is an incredible thing that takes place here. Uh, You see, before this, Isaiah wasn't communicating with the Lord. He saw the Lord, but he didn't hear the Lord. And the Lord sends the seraphim to minister the grace of forgiveness to Isaiah's soul with the hot coal. As a result of that, Isaiah now can hear the voice of the Lord. Just going to let that one drop for a minute. I want you to think in terms of the. If those of you who remember it think of the apparition of Our Lady at Fatima, and the young boy Francesco, I think it's Francesco, his name. I think I say I don't know if it's Francisco or Francesco. I'm sure it's Francesco. And if my memory serves me well, he couldn't hear Our Lady's voice on one of the on one of the apparitions. And also, he received communion under, I think, the precious blood. I don't think he received the the host from the angel. And Our Lady's, the the instruction from Our Lady was, he had to pray many rosaries. So you have a parallel, you have a parallel. To hear God's voice clearly in the soul requires deep repentance. People say, you know, oh, how can I hear God speaking to me? Simple. You have to have a deep repentance of all your sins. You have to have a radical transformation um, of, the, of, of heart in order to hear the voice of the Lord. And this is what the voice of the Lord says. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. Now, this is once again God God provoking us by the question of us. And I remember reading in a journey to divine intimacy with St. Teresa of Avila and the journey from the third to the fourth mansion. And sister Leslie quotes um, Jesus and his um, encounter with the rich young man. And the the rich young man has obeyed all the commandments. And he says to Jesus, what else must I do? And Jesus says to him, go sell all your possessions, give your money to the poor and then come follow me. And what St. Teresa, what what this Sister Leslie Lund says is, when we're journeying in our spiritual life and we're moving deeper into contemplative prayer, she says, do not be discouraged when the, Lord reveal, when the Lord uniquely reveals to your soul what more must be done in order to enter into a deeper relationship with Him. So here Isaiah, he's a priest, he's one of the chosen people, he's in the temple, he's making the sacrifices, he's probably living something of a holy life, and now God is calling him into something more powerful Um, and he says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And then the call of the Lord comes. Isaiah can now step into the prophetic anointing. So he's a priest, now he becomes a prophet. And everybody who is listening to this, all of you Catholics out there are priest, prophet, and king. Oh, and at that point, I wonder if for first song is ready, Aileen. She's been scribbling away, making notes, everyone, just in case. Just in case you're wondering what they do when I'm talking away. They're all scribbling and making notes. Right, yeah,
0: we like, to, we like to keep track of you, Derek. Um, so this is Pave Every Road, and it is Isaiah. Pave every road
2: with repentance Bring the proud heart low Let the humble heart see, Break down all your walls and your defenses Swing wide your gates for the coming of the King I see the sun rising
0: lively track from Caroline Cobb and its pave every road Isaiah we are in our credo program at the moment with Derek Williams and he's talking about fear of the lord in his series um sorry this is part 2 of his series fear of the lord which is our personal encounter with god i've corrected myself there derek
1: I know. How could you misquote the session? Honestly, I alien? know. That's just really. That's a bad mistake, a rookie. The red, young, a cardinal sin, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so we had um, off-air. We had a little bit of a chat, Derek, and um, you welcomed some of the questions that I was asked, thinking about as you were speaking, and one that I has bothered me, and I don't think this can be fully resolved ever but a question that you said that you were happy to that you think would be a good one to bring is um, animal sacrifices and i can't i can't imagine that god actually really wanted all those animals sac- sacrificed god spoke into the context of the time and the and the the religions that were around and the, and the the jewish people at the time and spoke into that place that's kind of how i cope with it Mm-hmm. Explain to us. Tell, tell us more.
1: Okay. I'm just going to hold something up, okay? So, we're going to think of animals being sacrificed as a atonement for sin, which is what they were, okay? And then we hold up a crucifix. And on it, we see the second person of the Trinity um, being sacrificed in atonement for sin. And we're okay with that. Okay, so what we're looking at now is um, what was the point of these animal sacrifices? You know, what was the point of, for example, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are told kill a lamb, Mm -hmm. um, take the blood and put it on your doorpost, eat the lamb, and the blood of the lamb will protect you. So this is God teaching the Israelites how they're going to be protected by the blood of the Lamb that they have to sacrifice. All of these sacrifices are a sign and symbol of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So it's all directing the people to look out for the One. Don't don't focus on the ones who are simply atoning. Which is the sheep, the oxen, etc. Look for the one who's going to remove the sin, because one's going to come. One man is going to come, and he's going to take the he's going to pay the price. These animals, these animals you're sacrificing at the moment, they are the the sign of something else. These are not the solution. They're the sign. Yeah. It's worth noting that a few years after Christ's ascension into heaven. Uh, Jerusalem was to a degree destroyed, and no sacrifices have happened since, because the the, sac- the ultimate sacrifices has taken a- has done away with all of those sacrifices. Yeah, and um, one of the reasons why God requires a blood sacrifice, which is what Jesus gives us, the ultimate blood sacrifice, is because when Adam and Eve sinned. <clears throat> The only solution to that sin was somebody else had to die because Adam Adam has given up life and he has taken death. Um, and somebody else has to come along and they have to voluntarily and freely take upon themselves everybody's death so that we can live again. And that's what Jesus does. He takes upon everyone's death so that we can live again. And yeah, so I could go on and on and on and on. I don't know if that's going to help you anymore, if you're going to have to process that for a while or not.
0: Yeah, I need to process it. And, mm. Yeah, um, please do. Yeah. And I think... Because
1: um, ultimately, ultimately, Aileen, it's... Sorry, I keep interrupting. But ultimately, <clears throat> um, when it comes to um, our, our faith, um, our faith isn't always a question of discovering things through reason. If we look at the first section of the Catechism on faith, I believe, we look at faith, and if you read that, it's only a couple of pages of, of what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, but He's basically teaching us that reason can take us so far, but eventually it must give way to the light of divine revelation. So I can explain so many things to you but God ultimately has to reveal it to you.
0: That's very true. And I think I think something that I have allowed to come into our programme today is some mm. of that wrestling with scriptures that we are asked to do, aren't we? When we read scripture, we stay with it. We wrestle, we listen, you know, I've listened to you today mm. and take it to prayer and for deeper understanding.
1: Well, I think this is so important, you know, um, the, the, the reason why I have written this book, The Fear of the Lord, and the previous works, the one on covenant, the one on the year of Jubilee, is because I wrestled, really wrestled for many years with different things in the Word of God. And I would I would be sat there reading the Bible and thinking there's something else in this, and I couldn't let it go. I, I wrestled for, for for hours, days, weeks waiting for God to show me and to teach me, both through um, what I was reading, but also through what the fathers would teach, what theologians would teach, so bringing it from different sources. And so I think it's very important to bring this sort of discussion in when we've been talking about Isaiah making all these sacrifices. And then the irony is, Aileen, of you know what we've just chatted about, is Isaiah making all these sacrifices in atonement for sin, but they didn't resolve his sin, they didn't take away his sin. The seraphim had to come away, that to reveal itself, or God had to bring a seraphim to Isaiah with a coal. And it was the grace that came through that, that removed the sin in the end. And that's the same with us when we go to confession. It's that grace removing the sin.
0: That's quite beautiful. And I find that very helpful, <laughs> um, placing that alongside this. The, if I could ask one more question before you carry on.
1: Please, um, fire away. I think it's great. I think it's great.
0: <laughs> the other thing that really struck me when I was listening to you is that you were talking about the lips and the touch of this, the, this flaming coal on, onto Isaiah's lips. And I was thinking about um, the breath and how connected it seems that breath is with God. The Holy Spirit breathes life into us, we're told in the Old Testament in Genesis. And, and I wondered whether the lips were significant in terms of breath and the fact that breath moves in and out of our lips. Um, I don't quite yeah, know I where I would take that, but it's something that struck me.
1: Now I concur. I concur. Um, not, just the, not just the fact that the breath comes through the lips, but also, if we think about the, the theology of the Son and the Spirit, and how the Church teaches us that the Son and the Spirit are distinct but inseparable, and they have a joint mission. So you have the Son and the Spirit, and you have the Word and the breath, and they both have to pass through the lips for us to speak.
0: Wow. You can Yeah. <laughs> and that's very much what makes us human, isn't it? The language that we have. that um, The, the, the meaning behind that.
1: And it's very interesting how with Isaiah, um, it's his lips that are purified so that he can, and, and he recognises, he doesn't say my heart is unclean. He talks about his lips being unclean. And this is the, what we have to always remember, this is the inspired word of God. So God God is inspiring Isaiah to speak like this, to, to reveal things to us, to teach us that, you know, it's, it's the words that we speak which cause the damage. We call, We can speak blessing or we can speak curse. And Isaiah is recognizing that even though he's a priest in Israel and he's making these sacrifices in atonement for other people's sins, he's the one with the unclean lips and he's seeing people every single day coming forward to make sacrifices for their own sins and he's saying none of this is making any difference to us folks Um, i'm a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips and only god has the solution no animal sacrifice has the solution only god has the solution and it's interesting that god instantly purifies him. Instantly. And my thinking here is how many of us can accept that instantaneous cleansing and removal of sin which we have now through the sacraments of confession?
0: So when we're in confession, we speak, don't we?
1: Yeah. We speak, we speak our sin. Yeah. And the, spe- and the priest speaks the words of absolution And if you like, at that very instant, a seraphim comes and removes the sin, if you like, because, you know, those sins go on the cross and Jesus, we have an encounter with Jesus. In fact, this, this is a theology. This is part of the theology of the church, the theology of the sacraments. That's when we are in the confession, confessional, we have a personal encounter with Christ who removes our sin. And if we do that confession, on the Feast of Divine Mercy, he also removes all the punishments due to our sin. So we are purified instantly. It's very important to get that. It is instantaneous. The moment the priest speaks those words of absolution, then our sin is removed. Just like with Isaiah, the sheriff touches Isaiah's lips and he was immediately cleansed of his sin. Thank you. Just tell all this <laughs> um, You yeah. Any more questions, Aileen? Really? Yeah. I find the, in, the discussion very interesting. And it, is on, it is on point because it's all about the encounter with God. It's all about the encounter with Christ.
0: I think the last thing for this phase is just another thing that really struck me was how um, when you were talking at the beginning, Derek, about that fear that we have when we see God, we cannot fail but to see ourselves at the same time. And I just thought that's just so beautiful because we cannot see God without being in relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And that's his act on us. And I just, I thought that was, um, yeah, awesome. <laughs> Using a modern phrase.
1: This, this is something I like to draw out whenever I'm teaching the scriptures. Um, I was struck some, some years ago by how many times it is written in the Bible, um, I saw the Lord. Whether it's in the Old Testament, for example, I've turned. I've turned for this part of this this show. I've turned to Exodus chapter three, which is a scripture I talk about it's a lot, and um, and Moses is, is is there at the burning bush, and it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire again. Fire, you know, like the stare from the fiery coal, out of the midst of a bush, and he looked. And behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. And then Moses goes and looks at this great sight. And in verse four, it says, "The Lord saw that he turned to see." So this, there's this constant sight and hearing, the senses, and you get it with you get it with Moses, you get it with Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, um, Solomon, Peter, Paul, the saints all the way through church history, through Jewish history, you get this constant theme of seeing God, hearing God, and communicating with God on a level which is like this. It's like a, a personal uh, communication, yeah? Um, and this is something I love to to draw out, this idea that um, Isaiah saw the Lord, and it's, it's like God God is sometimes spoken of, God is a God who lies hidden. We serve serve a God who is unseen and He dwells in unapproachable light. But at the same time, the paradox, the contradiction of our faith, God wants us to encounter Him. He wants us to see Him. He wants us to see His glory. He wants to lift up the veil and He wants us to have this personal one-on-one encounter with Him, which is always going to be a beautiful surprise. But, right. shall I press on, or shall we give the listeners another song?
0: <laughs> I would um carry on and in about five minutes a song, if that's okay, Derek
1: okay, yeah. now, I was on Exodus, but I'm actually gonna go. I'm gonna go to the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah's a real favorite of mine I love his I love his encounter with God. I love the way um his communication with God on his first calling, okay, and um so this is going to be Jeremiah chapter 1. I'm just flicking my Bible pages to get there. <clears throat> the, word of, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests. So once again, um, Jeremiah is of that priestly line. Um, and in verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the room, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So the word of the Lord has come to Jeremiah. He's hearing the word of the Lord. And I often think to myself, but is he also seeing the word of the Lord? Is he also seeing the Logos? Because, you know, the the word of the Lord isn't just uh, words. It's a person. It is the person of Christ. Then Jeremiah, being confronted with his own weakness, which is what the fear of the Lord does. The fear of the Lord... Gives us a confrontation with our weakness. Because that God wants to use us in our weakness. He wants to make the weakness strong by his own power. And this is what Jeremiah says. Our Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Same as Moses. Moses could not speak. He said he was slow of tongue. And he said, "Please send Aaron. Please send my brother. Please send anyone else but me." <laughs> and Aaron becomes Moses' mouthpiece. But the Lord says to Jeremiah, "Do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you." And then, like then, you know, as with Isaiah, Isaiah is touched by the seraphim. But here, the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. So he's actually seeing the Lord. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it's the the Lord Yahweh, because it's all in capitals in my Bible, Um, which once again, that's the pre-incarnate Logos, Jesus. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, Look at what God entrusts to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, by the way, according to Catholic tradition, is one of only a few um, a few creatures. So there's Jeremiah, St. Joseph, St. John the Baptist, and of course Our Lady. Um, but Our Lady was different. She was conceived in a state of sanctifying grace, but the other three St. Jeremiah, St. John the Baptist, and St. Joseph, traditionally born without original sin. So, set free from sin in the womb, yeah? And so, that's what, that's what it's kind of saying about Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. So, Jeremiah specifically, by unique grace of God, um, set free from sin in the womb, so that he could perform the mission that God would give him when he becomes a little bit older. And here's the mission. This is an incredible, incredible mission that God gives him um, as he fuses grace into his soul. Verse 10, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And that is done, how is that done? How is Jeremiah gonna fulfill that mission? Through the proclamation of the Word of God, the Word of God being so incredibly powerful that Jeremiah will be able to pluck up and to break down, destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Okay, now I'm gonna pause there, there's more I can say on this, but I'm gonna pause there because we we need to give them some music to keep them entertained. Okay.
0: (laughs) <laughs> we have comfort, comfort now, my pupil. Pe- and this is page 116. But Comfort Now, My People, by page 116. And we have Derek Williams with us this afternoon, our Credo program, and we are hearing about personal encounter with God. Derek, I have another question, and you've said I can ask. So so the question is, I I was listening attentively to um, Jeremiah, Joseph, and John the Baptist, and how they were consecrated in a different way but similarly in some respects to mary if i've understood correctly Mm -hmm. um so they i'm assuming they had they were they had something special to do for god why why are some chosen in this very particular way and gifted in this particular way and and not not others
1: superb question superb question If we look at the theology of the Immaculate Conception, okay, Mary conceived in a state of grace without original sin, by a unique grace of God, the only one in human history to be immaculately conceived. And we can ask the question, why? And and the the question is important. Why was Our Lady given that unique grace? And why was no one else given that unique grace? And why is no one else immaculately conceived? Why can't God preserve us all from original sin, because it is not necessary, okay? It is necessary for Mary because she was to be the mother of the Saviour, and it wasn't right that she would be under Satan's dominion for an instant, because she was going to be the mother of the Saviour. So a soul conceived in a state of original sin is under the dominion of Satan. He has a certain dominion over their soul. That's theologically, you know, and you'll find it in the Catechism. Okay, he has a a particular dominion over a soul in a state of original sin and actual sin. With Our Lady, it was not appropriate that she be under that dominion for even an instant. So God preserved her from, um, from original sin and from actual sin her entire life. So she was preserved by grace, by the grace of God, because she was to be the mother of the Savior. She was to be the mother of the Redeemer, the mother of God, the mother of Christ. So each person receives grace for whatever God is going to call them to for their mission in life. So Jeremiah was preserved, was received the grace of God in the womb because it was appropriate to the mission that he was given. John the Baptist was the same. Um, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That was the prophecy given by the angel Gabriel to John the Baptist's father Zechariah. He He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Why? Because he was to be the precursor of the Messiah. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah. So it was appropriate for his mission in life that he received that unique grace. Now, if I... I was actually going to read this part because this is to do with Jeremiah's calling. This is the footnote in my Bible, and it's quoting Catechism, Article 2270. All right. God willed the existence of each person and gave him or her an explicit calling to salvation. So everyone on earth has an explicit calling to salvation and holiness. And that calling was given before the creation of the world. And that's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, 4. Um, Before the world was created, God called you in Christ Jesus. So every soul has been called to Christ Jesus before the creation of the world. At the same time, God has a personal plan for every individual. So every so you said a minute ago how come some are called and chosen and others don't seem to be every soul on the planet has is called everyone everyone is chosen everyone is called the question you, we have to ask is how come some respond and some do not and that is the free will choice of the individual soul we have anyone involved in evangelization sees this anyone at all you can see people wrestling with the words you're using you can see people trying to work out and process as you share the gospel with them some people will embrace it and they will go for it and they will change their lives and they will turn to a life of prayer and penance and mass and sacraments and then other people will just refuse it turn away from it go back to their former way of life You know? And in fact, you see that one of the saddest New Testament scriptures is John 6, 66. Yeah? Three sixes. Many of them return to their former way of life. And it's just after the bread of life, Jesus challenges the people to that only by eating His flesh and drinking His blood will they have eternal life. And they have this encounter with His words, and Jesus is reduced to twelve apostles. You know, he loses hundreds of disciples on that day because people choose not to respond to his word. And this is the thing, the, the question is not so much, you know, why does give God give grace to some and not to others? It's why do some reject the grace and others accept it? And we find this in, in, I'm going on, I'm going off on one now, we find this in the diary of Saint Faustina, where Jesus appears to her, and, and says to her how, how, how hurt, how much suffering it causes him that um, he, he suffered so much and died on the cross in order to give grace to every single person and that that grace would make every single individual a saint in heaven. The grace that he won on the cross for every single person And he says, so many souls refuse the graces that he offers them. And he says to St. Faustina, will you be a steward of all the graces that other souls refuse in order to console my heart? So all those graces that all these souls have refused, we can accept. So at the moment, Jesus is offering the grace of salvation to billions of souls all over the world. And many souls are refusing those graces and are plunging into even more sin. And we can console his heart by saying, Lord, if there are souls out there who do not want to have that, that encounter with you, give that grace to me so I can have a deeper encounter and I can be a steward of grace on behalf of those souls. That was a heck of a long-winded answer, right? <laughs> it was great.
0: And I'm going to surprise you now a little bit, Derek. I feel a prompting of the Holy Spirit, and I hope, I hope I'm hope i not wrong in that. We have five minutes left, and I'm going to ask you, in this last part, you have spoken about these people, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, responding to God's call. And what really came strongly to me just now is hearing... You speaking about evangelizing and your call, the call that you have when you're here with us on Radio Maria, the call that you have, I know you speak and you you work very hard outside of this place, and you've had your own calling in a very particular way to evangelize, which is an important church role. Could you share a a moment you had when you knew that call was for you? in your life, for this particular vocation?
1: Sure, it'll be 34 years ago, this February. I'm going to keep my emotions in check. (laughs) Um, I've been doing a Life in the Spirit seminar. There have been three of us on the seminar, two of us actually, one, one person speaking. We met at his house every Monday and he would take us through it. And then it came to the final fifth week, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we went to the prayer meeting in screen Green, Birmingham. And um, they'd been praying for us every week. And um, these beautiful ladies prayed over me. They were all, I was 24, and these other ladies were all much older. I know them to this day. Some of them are still going strong. And then um, I remember sitting in a chair, listening to these ladies just praying over me, singing as well sometimes, singing in tongues. And as they did, and um, my, my vision was just full of darkness for a moment, but then my vision just became filled with light. My eyes were closed, but I felt my whole body filled with light. And um, at the same time, I felt this power pouring through me. I can only describe it as electricity, but it wasn't. It was just something, the power of God just pouring through my body and my soul. I felt I was lit up. And this is something I don't tell people very often, and I know this is going out on the airwaves. At the same time as hearing these ladies singing in tongues, and it was a certain pitch, at the same time as the light filling me, I heard another pitch of voices, a much higher pitch come in. And I, I knew it was angels. Um, I could feel the power of that singing as it, as it started. And that was a defining moment. That moment changed everything for me. I started going to mass, every day, reading the Bible every day with the Bible constantly. I gave away loads of possessions that I had, Um, and that was the moment that set me on to um, becoming an evangelist like I am today. Um, And um, yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, there we go.
0: Derek. Thank you for sharing that with us. And um, as we draw to a close today, first of all, I want to say mm. thank you. Thank you for coming in as you faithfully do, week in, week out. Um, I want to thank you for sharing that personal encounter in your own particular vocation mm. in that moment. And I would like us to pray for you this evening oh, and, f- wow. and finish that way. So, um, so, let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, you come to us in our lives. You seek personal relationship with us. Together, we have listened this afternoon. We've learned to grapple with your word. We've learned that you come to us in symbol. And at moments you come to us in ways that are beyond words, but that we recognize. We pray for Derek, for this work of evangelization. We thank you for his vocation. We thank you for what he brings to us. How you come to us through his words. We pray for him as he continues with his work. We thank you for this radio station where he works too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.